You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we proceed, look, I know it's a rough, super fucking rough time right now between protests, the outsized police response, and of course, this overwhelming presence of the global health pandemic. There's just a lot of shit going on right now. And I wanted to post something last week for episode 349, uh, you know, right before I went to production. But the way things escalated in cities all across the world over this past like week and a half or so really made me think about like, what if anything could this podcast even like say to help, you know, all of you that are out there listening? I mean, this podcast reaches people all over the world. Um, And so I started talking to people. I started asking questions. And one of the folks I talked with was Kendall House, who you might remember from episode 326 back in December of 2019. If you don't, go check that out. Um, He's a designer. He's a facilitator. He's even someone that has his own Black Liberation hardcore punk band, which is super dope. And I really couldn't think of a better person to really help contextualize not just what's happening right now, but also to offer up some action items that designers, developers, or any creatives that are listening to this show can do during these times. So I'm going to read off a list of things that he told me. And, you know, this is if you're listening, if you've been out in the streets protesting, if you've given money, if you feel like there's not anything you can do, if you can't do either of those things, hopefully this list will give you some ideas of stuff to do. Uh, First off, you can design a product like a t-shirt, buttons, greeting cards, etc. Sell or raffle those to make money to donate to Black Lives Matter causes or to reputable bail funds. That's a really good idea. Uh, Donate website revamps to nonprofits and to community support organizations. I know there are a few past guests on the show who have started doing that via Twitter. For those of you who work in-house, hold your employer accountable for representation, diversity, and inclusion, especially outside of posting a like regurgitated support message in white type on a black background. Like if your company did that at some point within the past seven to 14 days, hold them accountable for that. And, you know, also just seriously commit to making inclusion, including accessibility, fundamental to everything you design. Um, I know it can be easy to just design from a specific viewpoint, but really take into consideration the fact that once your design kind of leaves your hands, it belongs to everyone. And if you can, if you're able-bodied, if you have the time, you know, get out in the streets like everyone else, but just please be safe because it's wild shit happening out there. Um, We're going to skip the sponsor message for this week, at least for the intro, and we're just going to go straight into this week's interview. I caught up with Kojo Boateng. He's the creative director at PBS NewsHour in Washington, D.C. Now, if you remember, Kojo was episode 125 way back in February of 2016. Can you believe that? Uh, This is almost five years later. Uh, This was a really great time to catch up and talk to him about everything that's happened since then. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Kojo Boateng, and I'm a creative director at PBS NewsHour. Now, you, we've been on the show before. You were episode 125, so if people want to really like go back and listen to your origin story, I guess you could kind of put it, they can listen to that episode. I kind of want to talk about how things are going sort of right now. You know, We've been asking this with people that have been on the show recently. Given the time that we're recording, how are you holding up during this pandemic and this quarantine period? Yeah, so how I'm holding up during the quarantine period is really interesting. I live in D.C. and we're still in uh, lockdown until I think tomorrow where they're going to start removing some restrictions. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. As far as work, I'm working uh, remotely um, and I've only been at PBS for a about two months, I think. And I started uh, working at PBS NewsHour 
whilst we were during, in the lockdown. So I actually haven't even been into the office and seen the space where oh, I'm wow. really working. I haven't met any of the people who I manage. I manage about four people. I've never met them before, only on Skype and Zoom and Teams and that kind of stuff. To be honest, the transition into working has been pretty smooth because I had a background in news. So there's a lot of things that feel familiar. I've been working remotely for and kind of uh, freelance for the last five years. So working in Slack and Teams and all these other things doesn't feel strained. I think just trying to find inspiration creatively can be challenging and just trying to make sure you get enough exercise and enough air. And there's obviously so many different facets to people's lives and there's work and there's family and kids and homeschooling so all of that's been an adjustment but to be honest with you as we said off there we're both doing pretty awesome right now yeah well that's good to hear that's good to hear yeah Yeah. so let's talk a little bit more about your work at pbs news hour that's that's really interesting that you started it during the quarantine period i want to say there's been maybe about four or five of the past guests that we've had in the past few months where it's been a very similar situation. They just started a new job or they just transitioned into a new job and it's right during this kind of like weird and and stressful time. So you you talked about these different tools, Slack, Teams, you know, et cetera. What are your work days kind of looking like now because you're not like in studio? Yeah, so the work days at PBS NewsHour are very structured and they're generally structured around a number of editorial meetings every day. I have a nine o'clock meeting where there's about 70 people on the call and we talk about the stories of the day. And it's also like a retrospective of the night's broadcast before so we can talk about any issues that have happened. Generally speaking, by the afternoon, we have an idea of the type of stories that are going to be covered. So right now we're right in the midst of all of the craziness and you know the horrible situation that's happening in Minneapolis, as Mm. well as what's happening with Trump and social media at the moment and the pandemic, etc. But once we kind of know what the stories of the day are, then we're basically working to create graphics for the day, as well as looking ahead to any special programming that we've got coming up or any special projects that are happening within PBS NewsHour that, you know, we need to look ahead to. So the days are generally quite structured that probably can be quite stressful because there are obviously some communication issues but the technology actually is a real help and i just really just recently got a super fast computer as well um, that i can work on so that's the other thing like sharing files you know huge kind of like two gig files across a really slow network when you're crutching to to make airtime can be a bit stressful but overall you know it's been fairly smooth and i've been doing this for such a long time before so there's a lot of things that have almost kicked in like muscle memory for me really yeah back when i was working at glitch that was one of the big issues that we also had was we have in the office like a network server and we could upload to the server but like it's really slow if it's more than one gig it might time out and sometimes you have to restart the page so you can get the connection back like there can be a lot of issues with that sort of stuff yeah it's true and i think you know what i found is that even today i was working on something with a reporter and i've never met him before so first of all it's kind of introductions and all that kind of stuff and then get into the work and okay I've done the work, but then how am I going to be able to let him see a preview of it? So today I basically just sent like a really super low res H.264 file to him so he could see it. We had a conversation right now. You know, I'm really encouraging the people I work with to not just communicate by email, get on the phone and talk to people and actually start building those relationships whilst we're in this remote situation. So that we can kind of get some kind of work cadence, understanding what the pressures are for each other and make sure that there aren't any holes there, you know? Yeah. And also the phone, honestly, especially if y'all are all in the same time zone or in the same general geographic area, the phone is just a whole lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. But you'd be surprised how reliant people become with email, particularly, you know, like so you get a script or you get, you know, a graphic request and, you know, you're looking at it, but sometimes everybody writes differently too. So everybody's requesting the way in which they 
put things is different. I had one person the other week send me like literally like a two page thing. And I was panicked thinking, my goodness, you know, I'm going to have to get a couple of people on this. And when I actually dug into it, he'd given me so much information, but actually it was just like 15 stills that needed to just animate to his words. That mm-hmm. was, it was really simple. And then other people might just give you something which seems simple on the surface, but actually when you dig into it, it's a lot more complex and needs to have that conversation in terms of making sure that we can visualize and interpret the story correctly. Yeah. And so there's four people that are on your team, but like overall, how many people help really put the show together? I think there's about a hundred people who work on the news hour. And, you know, one of the things that made me want to work there was there's some amazing reporters. And particularly in this time now where local news and journalism is under threat, I really feel, felt that PBS NewsHour, more than any other station, is actually making a real difference. It's a different voice out there. And I think that with my expertise as well, I felt that I could definitely make a difference to the work that they're doing. And, you know, there are our executive producer, Sarah Just, she's amazing. She used to be at ABC News. Uh, Judy Woodruff, obviously, I'm not a while. There's a guy called James Blue, who's um, a specialist uh, producer. And of course, um, Yamisha Sindor, who's been doing some amazing work as White House correspondent and currently working on the Minneapolis story right now. So those people that kind of tipped me over the edge in terms of wanting to go and work there. Um, nice. So it's, it's really cool. How did you first like find out about that opportunity and get started there? How I found out about the job was I actually saw it on LinkedIn or Glassdoor or something like that. And I wasn't actually going to apply for it initially. I was working previously to, to that. I was contracting on a project at the University of Maryland, um, UMGC, working on an edu- edu- tech, educational tech platform. And I was just kind of thinking I would just stay in product. But, you know, I was obviously looking for new opportunities and I wanted a new gig. I wasn't necessarily enjoying what I was doing at the time. And this job came up and I wasn't going to apply for it. But my wife suggested, oh, you should just apply for it anyway. And then it was interesting just going into the interview process for that. There were just so many things that were just familiar. It's It's hard to explain. It's almost like being a boxer for 20 years and then then not having boxed for 10 and then put you picking up some gloves you know and yeah. it just all kind of comes back to you the language the terminology just how you put stories together understanding where there are gaps it's really just it's, it's actually really <laughs> quite scary to be honest with you how smooth the transition's been i don't know if that answered your question no no that did <laughs> yeah rebelled, yeah and now when we first spoke it was back in 2016 which feels like 50 years ago at this point <laughs> you were in the uk then what made you decide to sort of hop over the pond so to speak the reason i moved to the us was because my partner at the time is american and i decided that i didn't want to do long distance anymore so i moved and i was fortunate enough to be able to get a job which allowed me to move to dc where we live now And that came at a time, interesting, the last revision path. I was definitely in a transition period. I think I'd been working at ITN, the uh, UK uh, news company, for about 15, 16 years. And I think during the last revision podcast, I'd left ITN and I was retraining as a product designer. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I was interested in product was because I basically got tired of news and I felt that. I was heading towards a career cul-de-sac. You know, news is great, but you can definitely get stuck in it if you're not careful. And I'd been doing it a very long time. So once I'd moved to the States, I kind of was almost like starting again, really, from being a creative director, managing a team, working on all these huge projects in the UK, and then coming to the States, not knowing anybody, not really having a career path outlined having all these new skills having a little bit of money but not really any idea of where this was all heading it was a really interesting time coupled with visa stuff you know just Mm -hmm. like the the technicalities of what you can and can't do and i had a social security number but 
you know, you realise compared to the UK, when you are of age in the UK, you get something called a national insurance number. And it's basically the thing that's like your tax code. The social security number in the US is much more <laughs> insidious kind of thing. You know, you can't do anything <laughs> without it, you know. So there were so many kind of challenges that I had to deal with. And to be, you know, and obviously I'm in the, the Slack group with you guys too, but I was seriously un- underemployed for like the last three years and still really trying to find a way to figure out what my path was and, you know, just where I wanted to be as a designer, really, and a creative director, a product designer, even all of those things as well. You know, having all of these skills and having people tell me I was overqualified or underqualified or whatever, even though I've got, you know, like 25 years experience, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was, it was a pretty, honestly, it was pretty challenging time transitioning to a new country. But I'm fortunate that I've got the support of my family I've got some awesome friends who were able to connect me with people and slowly but surely I kind of was able to try to start building community here in DC and it's worked out really well. Nice. That's good to hear. It's interesting you mentioned that that transition period because I kind of feel like I might be at that point myself right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for folks that are listening that probably know this because I announced it on Twitter, but I was recently laid off. It's sort of a kooky side effect of this whole pandemic and, you know, other sorts of business issues. But I'm now at sort of a point where I'm taking a bit of a break before I decide to kind of really get back out there and start looking for work. But I get that feeling about what you're saying about like being underemployed. It's wild because like I've started to get, you know, people have been contacting me about, oh, you should apply for this, you should apply for that. All kind of recruiters have come out of the woodwork you know, because I mentioned it on LinkedIn or whatever. And I mean, they're all over the map in terms of the quality of work. Some of them are like straight up internships. Some of them are in fields that I have zero experience in, like Java engineer. I'm not a Java engineer, (laughs) you know, but like it's, it's coming from like all fronts. So I'm trying to think like, what is it that I want to do next? Because while I came up in design, I had my own design studio, Back when I worked for my former employer, I didn't really do a ton of design work. It was more like around marketing and media. Now, I did help establish our design department there, but like I, you know, only did like some design work here or there. I was sort of like a jack of all trades. If they needed me to edit audio, I could do that. Edit video, I could do that. Make something in InDesign, I can do that. Design an illustrator, a logo and illustrator, I can do that. Something in Photoshop, whatever. Sketch, Figma, etc. I could hop into all of those things and just kind of understand it and get to work. That kind of makes it tough when you're like looking for new jobs because there's not like a jack of all trades position. You kind of have to narrow yourself down to what it is that you want to do to fit whatever roles are out there. Yeah, but you know... I hear you there. And let me tell you something. I left my previous position when I was in the UK. I worked somewhere, you know, uh, afterwards, which I thought would be an amazing opportunity. I essentially was let go from there, which was, you know, for someone like me who is pretty kind of, I'm pretty methodical in a way in which my brain works and the way in which I think. Mm -hmm. That was like my whole world opening up and you know the world opened up and swallowed me i had no idea what was going to happen i called my, my my good friend i was in tears i had no idea let me give you some highlights of some of the things that happened in between that time that might put you at ease after leaving that job three months later i ended up working on a prince video with somebody who was introduced to me by the lady who is now my wife okay Mm-hmm. I moved to the States. I've worked at numerous companies in the States, freelance, albeit to a degree underemployed, but I've had some amazing opportunities working at Capital One. I've worked at UMGC, uh, done programming directing for AIGA's Design Week last year. I've made friends from through AIGA. You know, I now work at PBS. You know, so there are so many things that can happen. And I think sometimes... You know, there's that saying, as one door closes, another opens. Mm -hmm. I think, actually, as one door closes, many doors open. You just need to decide which door you want to go through. 
and the other thing I would say is, is that I, I suffer from the same thing as well, kind of like being a generalist or somebody who's T-shaped. Yeah. Um, and that's a benefit. But I also think as a black designer, we need that. You know, when you're a black designer, you need to be able to lay the bricks and be a foreman. You know what I mean? You need to be able to cook the food and serve it. You know what I mean? And do all the administrative things. And I think that puts you in good stead because you never know when something is going to happen, that means that you actually do have to rely on some other skills. You know, I think for me, one of the challenges has been that particularly in tech, you either find people who want something very specific. So a UX person who has worked in education or has done SAS or has done AWS or all of these things, or you have somebody, companies who just want a visual designer or they want somebody who can edit or code. And I think for me, what I've realized is that you never stop learning. So I like to learn new things and I like to do things that keep me interested. And I think that occasionally there are some rare people that come into your life and they see those things and they'll bring you along with them. And, you know, shout out to Adrian Herriot and Audra from Capital One, who I just met randomly and, you know, they gave me an opportunity to work on their AI team. So you never know, man. You know, I just feel like if you stay true to yourself and keep creative and have belief in yourself, the right things come along. You just have to be patient and know where you want to go. So now that you're here and you're settled and you're you're working, of course, you know, even in the midst of this quarantine and everything, what has the design and the creative scene been like for you here in D.C.? The design and creative scene in D.C. is very interesting because on the surface, it would appear that D.C. is quite dry. I always found it quite transactional when I used to go to meetups initially. But when you scratch beneath the surface, there's a lot of things going on in D.C., you know, and I think that, you know, I know AIGA comes in for a lot of slack, flack rather, you Mm -hmm. know, generally, particularly with Black designers and minority designers. But the DC chapter of AIGA is doing some really great kind of work on the ground. And there's a real design community here. And I'm really happy to kind of be a part of it. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think that they're also open to hearing about any issues, etc., so there's some really creative things happening aside from, you know, what AIJ is doing. I work with a guy called Kelly Tolls on a mural festival called Pow Wow. So I met Kelly. I can't even remember how I met Kelly. I think I met him through Diane Holton, actually. And Pow Wow is a huge mural festival that happens in D.C. I think that it's going to be in October, September, October this year, uh, pandemic willing. And essentially what they do is they have about 10 designers who are based in DC and 10 designers or artists from outside and they come and they basically paint huge murals across the city. There are kind of much more kind of grassroots organizations, shout out to Shaolin Jazz, who are a creative hip hop outfit out here in DC who are doing some amazing community work. They do a thing called Can I Kick It, which is film screenings, which are scored using uh, a hip hop DJ. So they'll take a film like Seven Deadly Venoms, you know, the martial arts film, and they'll score the film with hip hop and breaks and it's awesome. So there are some really, really interesting things happening. And I I think that with this pandemic, I think DC, the DC creative community is really going to have to think hard about how they kind of do things virtually. So we're already thinking about DC Design Week this year and how that's going to be kind of put on i'm not working directly with it but you know i'm going to be doing a couple of events programs some events with them yeah dc has a really robust creative community small but mighty small but mighty yeah i'm interested to see how you know design events start to sort of become more virtual in the future because i i wonder now if people are just kind of burned out on the sort of Hollywood squares looking kind of <laughs> like event experience for everything from, you know, a primetime television show to an IG live battle to a conference. It all sort of looks like work in a way. It does. I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting, man, because, you know, Saturday night, 
me and the missus were up watching Bad to Killer and Beanie Man on mm-hmm. uh, the verses. And, you know, we were riveted, you know, literally, you know, mirroring our phones to the TV and just jamming, you know. So I think that there's no accounting for a great idea and great content, you know. And if you can find the right medium to do that, I think that there's a bit of a kind of like a zombification of what's happening right now. Everybody's got, everybody thinks they can do a podcast. Everybody thinks they can DJ live. Everybody thinks they can do an IG live chat. But if the content's not good, people are going to fall off, you know? So I think what all of this has done is just accelerated the idea of how we're going to start thinking creatively. I mean, my partner, my wife, she works for the Smithsonian and, you know, she's been doing some amazing work, you know, thinking about AR and how you can kind of experience, uh, you know, existing exhibits through your phone. If you're not actually being able to be at the physical location, I Mm. think, these kind of innovations or new ways of thinking probably would have happened, but it takes something like this to kind of accelerate, work as an accelerant for these things. And I think it's just a really, there's, there are some great opportunities out there. You just have to kind of think about them and just try stuff. Yeah. I wonder if we'll start to see it's like hybrid virtual in-person kind of events, because right now as we're recording this, every state in the United States is in some form of reopening. So that means some venues are open, but the the attendee count has to be pretty small. So like if you're at a restaurant, the capacity has to be, I think, 50% less. Or if you're doing gatherings, they've got to be 10 people or less or something like that. I wonder if there's a way to kind of bridge the in-person with the virtual in some sort of way. I, I think like that's going to come within the next few few months or so yeah i mean i think that i think there will be i think that you know um there's a friend of mine here in dc um giorgio furioso he's a art collector and he had a he has a gallery which he just opened just before um all of this started you know and you know one of the things he was thinking of doing was having you know private viewings where you can come by appointment to see the art and you know maybe they'll put some cheese and wine for you and everything's sanitized and it's super clear so i think that to some degree i think the physical um physical experiences will definitely change but i also feel like as a black person i'm not going nowhere right now you know so i'm not trying to go out there and have anybody coughing on me right now yeah simple it's as simple as that you know we we're all going to be wearing masks and who who'd have thought like four months ago if you said you know we're going to be like beijing or tokyo you know where everybody wears masks because of pollution and stuff that we'd be doing that but this is the new normal so i feel like there are definitely opportunities in terms of how we are going to experience these events but there's no getting away from a good idea but it's gonna it's it's gotta be something super dope to get me out of the yard right now agreed i totally agree i mean here in georgia it's been different because we've been quote-unquote open now for i don't know about a month i want to say like they lifted the shelter in place order at the end of april and then they started opening up businesses and waves and so I had already sort of put on my calendar that the Friday or Saturday before Memorial Day was going to be my first time kind of venturing out into the city just to kind of see what it's like. So I did that on Saturday, and it was amazing. Like, a lot of people were not wearing masks. Many people were just sort of out and about like it was a regular Saturday. I would say certainly just in terms of the number of people that were out, it was it was much less. But, like, I felt kind of weird because people that weren't wearing masks were definitely walking by and looking at me sneering like, "Ugh, you're wearing that thing, you know? And it's like, let me just get what I need to get and go home, you know? Cause I feel like there's going to already be the stigma or people have already attached the stigma to wearing masks just in general because of the pandemic. But then there's also the additional racial component and what that might cause people to think or do or say as we've seen from kind of some recent things where people are calling the police and all that sort of stuff like yeah totally i mean i feel that yeah i hear you on that i mean here in dc if i come out of my house just walking on the street i would say 60 
to 70% of the people just outside are wearing the mask. Obviously, it's mandatory if you're in, you know, a grocery store like a Whole Foods or wherever or a bodega, you have to wear a mask. It's, it's a law here in D.C. You have to wear a mask if you go yeah. into a store. Okay, so, but <laughs> just very a slight segue, you know, all of this stuff, look, if you've seen that movie, is it 1916? You know, with the First World War one. Oh, 1917. 1917. Yeah. All the people are going over the top at the at the Western Front. That's black people, right? <laughs> okay. That's black people who are who are the front lines. Yeah. They want us to, you know. So I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> you know, and I'm not going anywhere without a mask. Yeah. I've gotten several masks because I wanted to make sure I had one that would fit right that would look right you know because they're all not made equal of course you can get those little disposable masks but i don't see myself leaving enough to really need like 50 disposable masks in a box like i'm not going out every day so yeah i've been getting a few different types of masks to see which one fit because it seemed like overnight i swear to god it seemed like overnight every company was now selling masks yeah because masks are the new sneakers masks are the new t-shirts oh boy they're not that's it this is a wrap. <laughs> yeah. You see them with valves, without valves. They've got yeah. designer masks. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> it's there's, some really create, there's some really creative ones out there. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been seeing you do when you've been talking about events, as you mentioned, this, I think it's a group called Five Points. Can you talk about yes. where that idea came from? The idea for Five Points was that uh, I've got a friend here in D.C. called Matt Green. He also is uh, one of the co-founders of District Running Collective, which is a Black running group out of D.C. here. met Matt through my friend Charlie Dark, who also is from the U.K. and has a running group. And we're both graphic designers. And at the time, I was thinking about, I just moved to D.C. and I was realizing after going to a lot of meetups you know what you do when you go to a meetup that's not pretty or with black people you go in there you sit down and then you turn around and you do a count right mm-hmm. <laughs> how many of you and i was consistently going to these events and realizing that there wasn't really anything which was a safe space for black designers and i wanted to do an event called create which wasn't just speaking to black design but everybody, but Matt wanted to do something specifically for black designers. So I think we've done about three or four or five points events now. And essentially what the event is, is a speaker series where we find designers, black designers and creatives from a multitude of disciplines who come in and they'll basically just talk about their work and their career and their path. But interestingly, what's happened as the events has gone on it's almost like each event has been a chain letter. So the first event we had um, Lorenzo Wilkins and Jen White Johnson, who's mm-hmm. an amazing photographer and designer from the Maryland region. Yeah. Um, and she also teaches at Bowie. And so she gave a really amazing presentation about her work, teaching. And over the course of a few events, it kind of turned into events about creative entrepreneurship as well. So we had a brother called Dwayne Rollins come and speak and Vince Wanger speak about creative entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So not just looking at the creative side of design and how to get a job, but also how you could potentially start your own business or turn your side hustle into a business or the mechanics of accounting and bookkeeping and the importance of that. So really looking at design and black people in a much more holistic and inventive way. And the name Five Points comes from kind of the Black Panthers 10-point program. So we have Five Points, kind of like a five-point program, which is around kind of community building and entrepreneurship and creativity and all of these things. But the interesting thing about the events also is, is that each speaker who comes to Five Points they have five points that they want to share with the people that come. Mm. And then the people that come also share five points. So if you've got five people in the audience, then that's 25 points plus the five points from the person that spoke. That's like 30 cool tidbits that you can leave with, you know? So that's essentially the idea really of five points. I like that kind of like 
additional aspect of like sharing five points as well. Like that's I like how that sort of feeds into the the name and everything like that. At first, I was yeah. gonna I was wondering if it was like hip hop related. I was thinking <laughs> of of uh, five points in New York City. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because there there's also like a five points. I can't remember which state it was in, but it was it was like a real kind of black almost like a black wall street type place i can't remember which state it was now mm-hmm. and i think as well in dc because of the shape of the district as well it also has five points so there are many there's about three or four different kind of etymological um kind of ways you could kind of look at yeah. the name but yeah it's been it's been really cool it's been a really cool event sadly because of the pandemic and you know schedules we haven't been able to do one recently but you know it's been a real a really powerful way for people to get together and there's something to be said for say 40 or 50 black and brown people you know it kind of has a slightly different vibe people immediately feel comfortable and are actually able to share a lot more about their experience than they would maybe in another environment which is really great yeah when we did the first live show this year out in Los Angeles in Lamert Park. Uh, we did that back in February for Black History Month there with AIGA Los Angeles. And it was great. It was great. Just like the energy in that room and like a lot of people stayed afterwards and not only did they help exactly. clean up and put chairs away, but like there was just fellowship and like people left after that and went and got drinks and got dinner together and stuff like that. And I'm like, I love that kind of fellowship aspect of black design events that is totally not present when I go to other design events. It's just not there. Prior to all of this quarantine stuff, I had been talking with other chapters, DC actually being one of them, talking with other chapters about doing similar live shows there. And then the pandemic happened and the place I was working for it canceled all travel and you know travel now is even still kind of an iffy proposition part of me thought about reaching back out to those chapters and being like oh let's do it virtually but when I really thought about it I want that live experience like I want it to be a space of fellowship like a physical space of fellowship for people to like actually see another black designer and talk to them in real life that like you just can't get that same feeling in a zoom call I don't know. I wonder if we're kind of looking at it the wrong way. I agree with you that, you know, being in the physical space is tricky, you know, on a Zoom call. But Mm -hmm. I also feel it's about the experience when you're on it and how it's kind of, I hate the word curated, but how it's kind of organized. As I said, as I flick back to our last weekend watching Bounty Killer and Beanie Man on Versus (laughs) last Saturday, we felt we were in our living room, but we felt like we were immersed in it. And I think that there's a fourth wall that can be broken with any kind of event that, you know, where you feel like you're, you're kind of getting something. It just depends on how it's done. And I think increasingly, just going back to your previous question, this is the new normal, man. So we're going to have to get wise to ways in which we can engage. And if you're interested in doing something in DC, we should definitely talk. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Maybe, you know, especially now that I've got time since I'm not working, I can look at (laughs) reaching back out to those chapters and kind of seeing like where they are in terms of planning and events. Because I feel like this has probably upended a lot of event schedules everywhere. So they might be clamoring for some some type of content. Yes, indeed. What impact has hip hop music had on your design work? Hip hop music has had an enormous impact on my design work coming from london you know growing up in the 80s late 70s 70s and 80s where you know the emergence of hip-hop it was the music and the culture that essentially got me into design you know i used to have a peace book where i would do my my little outlines and my little tag and you know it was a way in which I could just kind of express myself in a way. Moving forward, as I got older, I wasn't a huge record collector, but I definitely appreciate all of the artwork and, you know, the flyers. And, you know, London has a really diverse music scene in the sense that it's a real hub for all kinds of music, not just hip hop. So it is a real kind of education 
in music, following the dots and learning about breaks and other kind of derivative forms of hip hop, like jungle and drum and bass and mm -hmm. jungle and now grime, you know, which is a UK version of some would argue hip hop, um, or at least a derivative of it. So it was a huge uh, influence on me. A lot of my friends back in London are DJs and MCs and, you know, part of the culture. So I was immersed in it. I used to video all the live shows. And sadly, one of my very close friends, a musician and rapper called Ty, he passed away from COVID-19 about two weeks ago. Oh, man. Um, so that's had, that had a huge impact on me and you know my my kind of inner circle of friends um and in fact with ty i was the person i remember because he knows eddie opara as well he knew eddie opara as well and i remember taking him to when i was doing my masters in video i remember taking him to my university to introduce him to the internet and i sat him down and i was able to have him email eddie opara and I said to him, and visit a website, I think, and I remember saying to him, you're in New York now. You're on a New York hip-hop website. Think about how your music can travel around the world, you know. And then with him kind of designing some of his early kind of single covers and logos and T-shirts and that kind of stuff. In a way, aside from the career that I've had professionally, it's always kind of been a part of what I do, you know. And some of my good friends you know have gone on to even bigger things in the music industry and hip-hop so like there's a designer called brent rollins who is a really close friend of mine who we actually had come to our create event and he did album covers i didn't even, i didn't even know he did when i met him so he did like the most Death black star album he designed the logo for boys in the hood he did the last gangstar album so many kind of great covers and he subsequently has introduced me to a brother who you may have had on the show julian alexander yeah who's done, uh, some amazing work like 50 cent and so many other great things so he was episode 250 way, 250 there yeah. you go <laughs> so it's kind of i think that one of the things that as i mentioned briefly earlier you know i i've been doing this event called create and create is actually about building community and it is about all of the things that actually that I'm interested in that might be design that might be fashion it might be hip-hop but really for me I feel like you can't have design without culture and design is at the intersection of culture you know and that's really what my life is about as well you can't have culture without design you can't have culture without creativity and so that's kind of but hip-hop and you know jamaican culture and african culture they are if there's a venn diagram of all of those things i'm right bang in the middle what is it that's like keeping you motivated and inspired these days it's, it's interesting because i think during this kind of pandemic a lot of people have been saying oh you know it's an opportunity for you to learn something and you know you could read that book you never read or go for walks and meditate it's like i got work to do you know like <laughs> a new state is very busy and you know we have a family we're doing homeschooling and you know my wife is working as well but i think i'm doing quite a bit of reading there's uh, a book which was introduced to me called and i've got it right here and it's called the company of one and i'm kind of really looking into kind of like more of the, on the, the business side of things i you know i never really had any formal business training so i'm kind of just thinking about you know like little side projects that i can be doing that you know might turn into some kind of passive income project i'm inspired by the work that as I said my friend Kelly Tolls is doing with Pow Wow, so I'll be working with him. And just like the last week or two, talking about hip hop and music, I've always wanted to DJ. You know, always wanted to learn. I did like when I was a teenager, but never really picked it up. And then college took over, so I bought myself some decks recently, okay. some speakers and Serato. So I'm learning all of that. I'm learning a whole another interface and just kind of learning more music. That's something I'm really interested in getting to right now. But, you know, our daughter, she's 11 and, you know, she's obviously homeschooling and everything. So trying to keep her motivated is what's keeping us motivated. I think what's inspiring about work right now, 
I think I said at the beginning of this interview is the fact that we are in a tremendous period of change right now. And I feel like organizations like PBS, which are publicly funded, are an important voice to have. And so what's actually inspiring, to be honest with you, is to have a part of that, to be a part of that, to be able to message, you know, Yamichelle Sindor with a story and say, hey, have you seen this? And she hasn't. And maybe she mentions it on the program or to be able to, you know, people talk about having a seat at the table, but to be able to kind of talk about the nuances of how you might visualize a story of like the this sad uh, murder of this young African-American man a couple of days ago, you know, so I think to be part of that is inspiring. Um, the design side of it is, as I've said earlier, it's kind of something that I have done before. So it's to a degree second nature, but I'm actually really grateful for the opportunity to be able to make a difference and hopefully make the news hour better than when I came to it. If you knew that you couldn't fail in your professional life, what would you try to do? What I would try to do is take more risks. I think that I'm quite a safe kind of person, quite can be quite methodical. So knowing that you that everything would be okay, I think, you know, it's a really tough question to ask a person who's working class, you know. I think that we are or I am anyway, kind of pre-built with a kind of a fear already Im- embedded with, of, of a fear of failure. And it's kind of quite antithetical now, particularly for working in product design where, you know, you're supposed to fail fast, but failing mm. fast for a person of color could be the difference between rent or food. Yeah. So it's a challenging one, but it's, it's an interesting question you asked. And it's something that I I'm constantly kind of trying to push past, even in my design work, you know, whether it's the choice of typeface or the color or the the technique that you use. And it again goes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of continuing to keep on learning, you know, particularly as you kind of move forward in your career. I think one of the reasons I got out of working in news in the beginning was because it's like a big comfy sofa that you could never get out of. And when you have a situation where you don't want to change something, then that can be kind of detrimental to your career, you know, because if you're not reinventing, then you're stagnant and you're dying. Yeah. And it's a constant. I'm saying it like I'm some kind of sage wise person, <laughs> but trust me, I have the same kind of insecurities and the same kind of doubt that everybody does. But one thing I've realized as well, though, particularly working with some people here is that most of the time we're better than the people that are in these places just Mm. because they work at Facebook or Apple or these companies doesn't make them any better. You know, they just have the title. Yeah. That's very true. Just because you work for the brand don't make you the brand. Yeah. Just makes you another cog in the wheel. Who's maybe just trying to do a good job. That's something that I've been thinking about, particularly like, as I look to see what my next opportunity is like, I feel like at this point it would have to be something remote one, just because the pandemic, like nobody's really going back into offices soon. That's the first thing. The second thing I've been working remotely much longer than I've been working in offices. Like the last time I worked legit in an office was 2008. And I know Mm -hmm. offices have changed since then. And even back with my old employer, I would maybe work there like a week or two out of the year, but like, I hated it. I was like, Oh, I want to get back to my setup at home or like I have my, my right desk yeah. and my chair and everything like I'm, I'm supposed to. And like companies now are going to have to sort of adapt to this new sort of distant workforce. Cause I think a lot of people now are working from home and they like it. And they're like, yeah. I don't know if I want to go back into the office or maybe they don't feel like it's safe to go back into the office. So now you've got these new sorts of setups, which I think opens up the job market in a way. One thing that I've been sort of wary of, is like I'm in Atlanta and the job market here for designers is not great, especially yeah. not if you're not an entry-level designer. There's not really a whole lot for you. A lot of places yeah. will look to hire people like right out of school where they can get them in like a junior position or something. But when you've got 10 plus years of experience, it becomes a little trickier. And then also with me, I mean, I'm bringing it back to me again, I'm kind of at the point where 
the work that I've done for the last few years has been more in strategy and media and less about design. I can sort of bring my design knowledge over, but then it's like, where am I going to find these particular types of positions? And is this something I have to create for myself? And is there a company out there that fits that? So like you have all these, at least I do, I have all these sorts of questions around that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I totally hear you on that. I mean, I feel that, you know, this working from home thing is interesting because if you're working from home, then what does home look like? What does Ooh. home life look like? And what does is, what is your lifestyle look like? What is your routine if you're always at home? I always tend to take a little bit of a kind of, a, I guess maybe like a devil's advocate kind of approach to thinking about things or thinking the opposite just to see. So, okay, so you and a lot, probably a lot of people are thinking, okay, maybe I just got laid off and you know, I need to start thinking about which place I'm going to work at, which is remote. But what if you were actually thinking about starting a business now in this time? It's the best time to start a business right now because the, everybody's kind of this kind of a great leveler. And, you know, from one of the Five Points events, you know, my good friend, Dwayne Rollins, who is, he works for a nonprofit called Seedspot. He said something that's so profound to me, and you may have heard it before, it's like, how are you going to stop exchanging hours for dollars? How are you going to do that? Yeah. So whilst we're all thinking about working for these companies, just going back into the same routine again, they benefit, you know, they don't have the overheads, but we don't reap the benefits of the, of the cash. So what are we going to do to empower ourselves so that we can actually have our own businesses that us are flourishing whilst we're working from home, what kind of networks can we build diasporically that empower us, you know, now because we're all working from home, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? You know, that's kind of where my brain's at right now in terms of my thinking. And a lot of that is not necessarily pushing pixels. It's really more about the kind of high level kind of strategy stuff about what design looks like in this new world, potentially. Right. Because now, like so many conventions have been just upended with, uh, you know, with this social distancing or even with just putting in these safeguards to make sure that people feel safe to resume the activities that they did prior to all of this. I mean, everywhere from yeah. airlines to office buildings to restaurants to movie theaters. Yeah. I saw like some mock up that was showing a movie theater that had just like these clumps of seats, like one seat here two seats here, three seats there with like all this space in between. And part yeah. of me was like, that's perfect. I would love, <laughs> I would love that. But, you know, but, it's, but, it, but it's that old adage, isn't it? Right. What is a movie theater? Really? Yeah. The movie theater is not the movie itself. It's the experience, experience. of buying the popcorn. And ultimately that's how they make their money anyway. So how do we kind of change the experience? And to be fair, to a degree, what role does design play in that? kind of in terms of us reshaping that experience what role does design thinking play in us thinking about that there's a company who i did a job for recently they're a print company based here just down the road in maryland mm-hmm. they're a print shop everything locked down because they're you know their print business no one was doing conferences and events they didn't need posters they didn't need flyers all that kind of stuff but what they realized was that they had a fulfillment business that actually could handle the logistics for PPE. So what did they do? They pivoted that side of their business to start acquiring PPE. And basically that's how they're sustaining themselves right now, selling PPE and those kind of, that kind of equipment to a lot of the hospitals in the region. So what does the design side of that look like? Yeah. For us as black young creatives. I think that's that's an interesting question we should be asking ourselves, not just how can I just roll back into the same routine <laughs> so that I can watch Netflix in the morning and do my work when I want. Right. Yeah. I think especially as I think about movies, because I mean, here in Atlanta, Tyler Perry has talked about they're already moving forward on production, even in this sort of, you know, kind of like pandemic lockdown thing. I mean, for the most part here, there is no lockdown at least in the city, oh, I'd say in the state of Georgia in general, but in Atlanta, we're sort of on this five-phase plan to completely reopen the city. People are still out and about. People are still going out, at least from what I could see from last weekend. So Tyler's like, we're moving forward with production. 
on my new yeah. shows. And I think he's like the first studio to go back into it. I'm interested to kind of see how that's going to work, yeah. you know, because there's like oftentimes dozens to hundreds of people on set. Like, so how would that all kind of work? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I think that a lot of that stuff sounds like a, you know, uh, obviously a health and safety challenge. And I, again, I feel like there are opportunities and I'm sure there are, technologies you know i mean even looking at something like the mandalorian and how that was shot just in a 360 degree kind of essentially kind of like massive flat screen environment you know projected environment i'm sure there are going to be a bunch of innovations that come that help us with this but as you know as, as i feel like we are the front line of this horrible disease and you know we have to figure out ways in which we can remain safe whilst kind of feeding our families too so i think that's it's going to be a huge challenge and where this is you know just wrapping your head around the idea that people are talking about restrictions being lifted but we could be in this for three years from now yeah it's you know wrapping your head around that three years of you know of this kind of working so how do we make sure that our mental health and our physical health is kind of is just as good as our whatever creative kind of projects we're trying to work on through zoom and slack and teams and all this stuff where do you see yourself in the next five years like what kind of work do you want to be doing in the next five years i'd like to see myself Honestly, it sounds quite cliche, but I'd like to see myself doing much more product and tech work, but work that is an amalgam of all the things I've learned over the years. I would love to be in a position where I kind of had my own thing. And I think I'm probably there with this Create Collective project, which is, you know, a mixture of events and hopefully product and speaker series and so many other things and music and culture and i think that you know obviously want to make sure that i remain <laughs> i remain healthy as well because you know all of the the deaths whether by police violence or through covid that i've been personally affected by at least with the covid side had definitely given me pause for thought about where where we want to be you know from now and you know i would love to be able to travel more but honestly i think that one of the things that's happened in the last few years is i think that whereas before i was you know you kind of think in this kind of real linear way you know go to college you know finish high school go to college get your degree get your first job get your second job climb at the ladder become a creative director become the top of the tree i've already done that and so for me now, I think it's really just about the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to be compensated for that work. But also one of the things that I admire, and my brother Ty who suddenly passed away and other people, is that idea of freedom, of creative freedom. And I think that when you have autonomy and freedom in your job or autonomy and freedom in your life, or if you're at least aspiring for that, you automatically feel empowered and creative and there are no boundaries to what you can achieve. So that's the one thing I would love to have is the confidence to feel that I'm free to do what the hell I want. Now, one question that you know I've kind of been asking everyone on the show this year as a general theme is about you know the the notion of an equitable future. And I got this concept from going to Black and Design Conference last year at Harvard. And their whole theme was like Black futurism. Like, mm -hmm. what does it look like for Black people in the future? Mm -hmm. And like, how do we use what we have to sort of make that happen for us? So how are you using your skills to help build that more equitable future? How I'm using my skills to build an equitable future is really, to me, about networks. And I think that, to your point, you know, in your, in your question, you talked about Black people. And I'm from England. And when I think of Black people, I think of the diaspora, not just America. And so my friends in London who are Jamaican or Nigerian or Ghanaian, we already have a connection. I'm here in the States, but I'm always looking for ways to empower them. I had my friend Harris Elliott, who's an amazing stylist. You should look him up. 
from a stylist and art director, he came to DC and did an amazing talk with Brent Rollins about their extensive careers. And I think that what we're doing in our in, in our small network of Black creatives and friends is trusting each other and helping each other where we can and realizing that for me anyway, equity isn't about getting necessarily getting a seat at the table. It's about building your own table. Yeah. And building people along with it. And, you know, I did a talk um, at Howard University sometime last year. I can't remember when it was, maybe around September or October. And I'd said to them, look, one of the things that for me, you talk, people talk about equity and inclusion. If you want more black people in design, start your own design business and hire more black designers. <laughs> Simple. You know, don't wait for Facebook's, you know, 2% quota. Do it yourself. Right. And in a way, it's kind of the reason why, you know, Matt and I have been doing Five Points or why I've been doing Create and, you know, or why I've been helping out with Design Week is because, for one, I see an opportunity to learn. I see an opportunity to work with people who have a similar mindset, either within AIGA or within my own kind of friend network. But ultimately, it's a kind of about trying to do for self as well, you know, and not waiting for somebody to hand something to you. You can spend a whole bunch of time complaining about how Facebook or another company aren't employing too many of you, or you could support a brother who has an idea who's just starting out and just get on the phone call like I did the other day, helping a guy who had an idea for an app and didn't know what to do. When I was starting as a designer, I had people who I could lean on no matter the race, you know, trusting people who I could ask for advice. And I think part of the thing about creating an equitable future is about sharing that knowledge and, you know, not kind of being too possessive about it. Um, and I really feel like these ideas are quite cyclical and I kind of believe in karma as well. You do something good for somebody, it's going to come back around. It might not be immediately, but it might just come back around at the time when you just need it. You know, when you've been laid off from that job and then you get that phone call asking, hey, could you design a flyer? You know, for me, it came with, I was literally at my mum's dinner table with my IMAX sound dinner table. I had moved back home and my now wife calling me and telling me, long story short, hey, there's this print video. Do you want to work on it? And I literally, I directed it with an amazing guy called Ralston Smith. And, you know, we did that. Couldn't tell anybody. And now we kind of can because he's no longer here, sadly. But you never know where the next opportunity is going to come from. So kind of keep your mind open and don't be afraid to, um, I feel like, don't be afraid to give <laughs> your ideas to trusted people. I say all that too, <laughs> as I look at my list of things, I've got like a list of four things uh -huh. on, on here on a sticky note. Uh, it says, don't work for free. Don't put out fires. You know, when people call you and they say, oh, I need this last minute thing. Try not to work for free. Don't compromise on money and don't do favors. And I only mm. do favors for people who I trust. And that is how I create equity because I'm not really about the foolishness. You know, <laughs> if you're coming to me, I'm kind of serious. This is a serious thing. So I'm happy to help people for not much, but you have to give respect back or at least pass that on to someone else. Well said. Well said. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, Kojo, where can our audience yeah. find out more about you and about your work online? Your audience at Revision Park can find more about me on social media, Twitter and Instagram at K Boateng. That's K-B-O-A-T-E-N-G. And also, if you're interested in Five Points, you can find us at Five Points DC. And also for Create Collective at Create, that's C-R-E-8 underscore community on Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Well, Kojo Boateng, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for talking about kind of just like giving us an update on what you've been working on since, you know, we last had you on the show. I mean, well, since we first oh. had you on the show back in 2016. I mean, you know, since then you've really kind of become part of the revision path community and you've helped people out with, 
advice and with just being a good sounding board. And so oh. I was really, really glad to be able to talk to, especially at, I think this really fraught time where people need to really just kind of hear some advice on like, what's the next thing to do because we're all in this situation together and don't really know what the way out is. It's kind of good to be able to bounce these ideas off of each yeah. other like that. Yeah, totally. And I want to thank you also, Maurice, for all of the amazing work that you're doing within the design community. I mean, you are up there, man. Seriously, you're doing such great work. And, you know, when, when I think about networks, you know, it's Gabrielle Smith, who used to be in my team at ITN, who introduced me to you. And even in my transition to the States, just being part of our collective has been an amazing opportunity to just kind of share ideas. I've met you, you know, we met physically in New York and in DC, yep. you know, I've become friends with Regine. It's amazing. So thank you, man. Thank you, brother, for what you're doing. It's really a great thing at any time. You know, I've got you anytime. Big, big thanks to Kojo Boateng. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kojo and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Maybe you're looking to start a podcast? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Band Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. This week, I also just want to give a special thanks to Kendall House for those great tips that I talked about in the intro. Shout out to him. Check out his episode if you want to learn more about him. And I'm just curious, what did you think of this, the 350th episode? Technically, it's the 353rd episode, if you count the bonus episodes we had, but canonically, we'll just say 350. What did you think of this episode? Did you like the conversation with Kojo? Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for 350 episodes. We will see you next time.